All right, hey, before we get into the Word, we're going to have just a couple people share about the apologetics conference that we went to last week. And so, let's see, um, I'm going to have Jenna come up first and share. Give it up for Jenna. Good morning. Um, So, last weekend, we went to the Reality Apologetics Conference, and the theme was chaos to clarity, and it was about, like, what the world says versus what the Bible says about certain topics. And it was really interesting because we got to look at topics that you wouldn't necessarily hear in the church, like um, sexuality, race, um, abortion, that sort of stuff. Um, but it was really interesting because a lot of people have questions on whether, like, including myself, like, where where do I fall on this? Because you, you want to love other people people write, but you don't want to be unbiblical in it. And so I found that really interesting, just how um, it, it gave a good answer on, on how to treat other people and to treat certain very touchy topics with people who are Christians and with those who aren't in the world um, and just still love them the way you should. So. All right, where is Logan? There he is. All right, well, for those of you, my name's Logan. Uh, so this, uh, this was my fifth, I believe, my fifth conference, and it was a little different because I felt like this conference was more of like a informational, like they were giving you more information on different topics instead of like really telling you how to defend it, although they did do that as well. But uh, I'll just briefly, um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was the first, the first session uh, was kind of, as Jenna talked about, uh, chaos to clarity. One of the speakers played like the chaos role, one of the speakers played the clarity role, and they were kind of debating on different topics. Uh, and one of the topics that they debated was rel- uh, subjective truth versus like objective truth. Subjective truth being, you know, what's true for me might not necessarily be true for you, and what's true for you might not necessarily be true for me. Uh, and then objective truth, it's, you know, true no matter, you know, who believes it. Uh, so basically, Tim Barnett, uh, who was Clarity, he kind of gave an analogy. He, he, was, he used an interaction with the crowd. He asked the crowd, you know, uh, I think he asked two different people, right, the two different people, what, you know, kind of car he owned. And I think one person was like, uh, red Prius, and, th- and then another person thought or said uh, blue Honda Civic. So he's like, okay, so these two people, they have you know their own opinion of what kind of car I own, and you know it's parked in my garage. And he's like, only one of them can be right, or one of them is wrong, or neither of them is right, but they both cannot be uh, correct at the same time because I either have a red Prius, or I have a blue Honda Civic, or I have some other kind of car. And then he compared that to, like, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was, like, you know, religions and belief systems, like, for example, um, you know, the beliefs of Muslims, Christians, atheists. You know, they all believe different things, um, but their beliefs uh, cannot all be true at the same time. So that was just something that I thought was really cool and interesting. All right, and Dan Benson.
Yes, um, I just play off what a little bit Logan said. Uh, in the past, um, the, the Rethinker um, Conference was basically, you know, defending the faith, dealing with atheism and other religious systems. But what was really good about this was is that this had a real broad spectrum of addressing real issues from um, sex and sexuality and marriage and the biblical worldview of sex, dealing with suicide, which I really appreciated with, is because suicide is a real problem, especially now. And basically that whole session was about just opening the door, you need to talk to somebody. And you know, it's, this is okay, it's normal, we all get depressed. Um, the idea of, of finding God in nature and creation, um, moral relativism and dismantling that and, and biblical relativism, um, all these sessions were really good. Why, why is there evil? Why does God not do well with what's going on? Which is a lot of questions a lot of the young people are all dealing with. It was a really good broad spectrum. Uh, all the sessions were really, really very good. Um, I like the last one where Wallace, basically, he's an ex-cop. I identify with that. He forensically broke down why Jesus is the Messiah and all these other gods and all these other things are just trying to... Our, our pathways are trying to lead to the ultimate Christ and how the theology about all these other gods and all the religions actually added on Christ-like attitudes to their God. And reality, they're not even close. And he broke that down in 45 minutes in a really, really incredible way. The big thing about the whole conference was there is so much evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, that having a relationship with Christ is real, it's evident, it's undeniable, and there is no other path but this, and just tons of evidence to prove that truth. They have uh, breakout sessions uh, throughout the weekend, and you can choose to go and hear different speakers. So one of the speakers I decided to go, and I think I was the only one from my group, at least, that got there early, was, was Greg Kokel, who's the president of Standard Reason. And so he was taking the opportunity before the session officially started to ask people where they were from. And, and so one person, like, it was, a, it was a, a, a big room that was really packed, but one person on the other side of the room from where I was sitting was like, uh, Missouri. And he's like, from St. Louis, are you that group that drives up with all that stuff written on your van? And the person's like, no. And I'm like, no, that's me over here. And so he didn't hear me at first, but I kept shouting. So anyway, that's like still on his mind that we write on those vans and everything. So we had written on our van some different things, you know, um, you know, uh, reality conference or bust. I think we wrote like, you know, uh, Greg Kokel for president or whatever. And honk for Jesus. We actually had a lot of people honking. Well, that was written on my van, and like people would honk like every about ten minutes or something like that. So, <clears throat> um, anyway, so he came over to my side, and he's like, "I just want to make one thing really clear: don't vote for me for president." <laughs> so anyway, it was a, it was an awesome conference. We took about thirty uh, people up there and. Um, had a really, really good time. So thank you all for your prayers. And you, can, you heard from these three, um, and you could hear from others, talk to them about uh, what, God, what God did that weekend and how they were encouraged. One last thing before we get into the Word. Um, our prayer since really January of this year, 2021, it seems crazy that we're already here in November and Thanksgiving is, is this week, right? But our, our prayer um, was that we would end up in a situation that at the end of the year on December 31st, we would end up um, 
over budget by about $29,000 so that because at the end of the year on December 31st, we will owe uh, roughly $29,000 on our building and we want to pay it off. So that's what we've been praying this entire year. One of the challenges I gave at our members meeting back in September was kind of like, hey, let's, we, it looks like we are close and might be able to do that. So we're praying it, but let's put, um, let's put some action to that prayer, right? And so let's cross that finish line. So we have six Sundays left, including this Sunday, um, and it looks very realistic that we will be able to do that. So one, praise the Lord. But two, we still have, a, we still have some money to go um, that we need to um, have given by you all. So everyone can participate in that, whether it's pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, dollars, um, whatever. We will... Take it as your tithe from the Lord and use it. One, in doing the different things that this church does, things like the reality conference. Um, but two, what a blessing and a privilege it would be for this um, church, for us as a congregation, um, to be debt-free and have this building paid off. So I know I shared it at the, at the members' meeting, but you know it goes back about, we bought this building in January of 2002. So it's something that we've been working on for almost 20 years of um, mortgage payment after mortgage payment. And anyone who owns a home, right, you know that feeling of making that payment each month. And some of you um, have been blessed to pay off your houses, and we as a congregation are very close to being blessed to uh, being able to burn that mortgage deed, basically. So, um, one, just an encouragement. Two, a little bit of an exhortation to continue to be faithful and with your giving. We do appreciate it. We don't take that for granted. So thank you very much. And three, let's, let's just finish that. Um, let's finish that race, so to speak, that we're running on that particular item. Amen? Amen. All right, Second Thessalonians, starting in chapter 2. I'm not going to read all of chapter 2, but we'll just read the beginning part, and then I'll refer to parts of it. It says in verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Um, everything that you've done for us, uh, will do for us, and are doing for us. God, we thank you that you are merciful, that you are loving, that you are kind. We thank you, Lord, that you've gifted uh, different men and women to put on a conference that we can go and glean things about you, about ourselves, and about your world. I pray, God, that as we uh, dig into your word today, that you would illuminate our hearts, enlighten our hearts, give us um, clarity of thought, and receptive hearts to receive your truth and then to act on it. We also pray for our children who are practicing for the Christmas musical, that you'd bless their time, that different family uh, and friends that come would um, enjoy that, as well as hearing a clear presentation of the gospel and respond in faith um, to the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, thanks for um, blessing this church uh, financially this year, that we're in a position that that we can pay off, um, it looks like, the remaining amount of the mortgage that we owe. We acknowledge you and your gracious hand to us who gives 
freely to us, Lord, and sets the perfect example of how we need to be generous um, towards others. So thank you for your kindness and the riches that you give us, Lord, physically, Lord, and spiritually as well. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, when I was in college, I uh, ended up going to college and and was able to take some, um, basically like dual enrollment um, when I was in high school. So I ended up with, oh, I forget what it was, like 22, 23 hours of of college credit, which allowed me to um, be in a position to to graduate early and then also kind of make my last semester or two a little bit easier. But um, I ended up in a situation of my own predicament that my second to last semester, I had, um, I was in my seniors, I was religious studies major and I was in my seniors, uh, basically seminar. And so we're studying um, all sorts of of religions, but we're also studying all different aspects of of the ways of looking at religion. Like, you, you know, the psychological approach, the sociological approach, all these different things. You might think, oh, that's really cool and fascinating. It's not. It's actually pretty boring. Okay. <clears throat> um, uh, what I learned was uh, most of those guys were just blowing smoke and making stuff up. But anyway, there I was in my senior seminar class, and I had a paper due, and, and um, through a series of event, events, most of which I was responsible for, I was not able to complete one of my papers for my second to last semester. And so I went to the teacher um, and asked for basically an extension for that particular paper. This was not like some little like five-page paper. This was like a 25-page paper. So nothing easy that you could just knock out real quick. He was super gracious and kind, gave me that extension, and then um, added the, the most dangerous words I feel like I've almost ever heard from a teacher before. Just make sure you have it done by the end of the next semester. All right? So this was May. Okay, so, you know, being the, the studious, on, on top of things uh, student that I was, right, as soon as I got done with that semester, right, I, I went home and knocked out that paper. No. No. No, no, I decided to get that done in June, right? Because then I can enjoy the rest of the summer. No. Okay, well, I'd finish it that summer, right? No. Okay, well, I'm back at college from my last semester, so I, I, let's get it done before all the other classes get super hard. No. So I wait, because he said I could, you know, just turn it in before the end of the next semester, right? So as long as I hit that deadline, like I'm golden, right? So it's, it's the last week of the, that last semester of mine with everything else due, and I hadn't touched that paper since the previous May, <laughs> which is like what? June, July, August, September, October, November, December. Seven months, right? Of a 25-page paper of really in-depth stuff on, uh, on the sociological understanding of the family within Mormonism. That was kind of the watered-down version. So I get to that last week, <clears throat> and finals week for most college students is hectic as it is, so there's a little bit of pressure added to me there. And uh, to complicate things, I was like, well, uh, I'm going to need every, every second I can possibly get to finish this paper, because it's got to be good. Like, this is, you know, senior seminar class. So I, we get to the end of the, of the week, and I'm, I'm finding out, and I'm talking to the professor, like, when is, uh, like, When's the last, like, minute I can turn that in? <laughs> <laughs> this is before, like, you know, it's 
it's a beautiful thing today, but today you just like hit email, hit send and email the professor the paper. Now he needs a physical copy, right, in his hand. So he was like, okay, well, the building gets locked at 5 p.m. <laughs> so you need to be in the building before 5 p.m. <clears throat> I was like, okay, I can do that. So it's like the last day most people have gone home. It's Friday. I've been working on this paper throughout the week. And it's like, I'm, I'm slowly finishing up. I actually quickly finishing up. There's nothing like a little bit of pressure to really, you know, knock those pages out. So it's like, you know, Friday comes. I'm like, oh, I still got the rest of the day, you know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. I mean, I'm working furiously. Don't get me wrong. It's like 4 o'clock. Okay, I got an hour. 4.30. Okay, I need to hit print soon. So it gets to be like 4.50. <laughs> and I hit print. And of course, there's a problem with the printer. <laughs> <clears throat> so then finally, at that point, I started sweating, <laughs> like literally. So I finally get the, little, the, the problem with the printer fixed. And I'm like sprinting like a dead sprint towards this building because it's like 4.57 at that point. It's about a half mile away. So I get there. I get into the building. I'm like rushing up because his office is on the fourth floor. and. I go to the, you know, the stairwell leads up to that fourth floor, and I go, and the door's locked. And I'm like, I'm toast. Like, I missed it, right? I missed it. So I, like, slump down. I'm, like, having all these things run through my mind. <clears throat> and then I just, like, start pounding on the door. I'm like, there's got to be someone in there somewhere, right? <laughs> I'm just like, this is like, I need to graduate, okay? So I'm pounding on the door, pounding on the door. Finally, like, someone walks by. And it's one of those doors where it's like just that tiny little like sliver of glass, you know what I'm talking about? The little thin ones. And someone walks by, I'm pounding, and I'm like, you know, pointing down. So they come and they open the door, and I, I get over to the professor's office. He had a little box outside where you put the paper, right? So um, all, all ended well. And I, and I graduated. <laughs> I still have that paper almost as a reminder, don't do this again, <laughs> okay? Anyway, for that split second, right, like I thought, I thought I had, like, missed the deadline. I thought I had missed the cutoff. That's kind of just a, somewhat of an illustration of, of where the Thessalonians thought that they were because they thought that they had missed the coming of the Lord. A little bit bigger than missing the deadline for the paper, right? So, but you can imagine, like, the panic and the alarm that they felt. That's why he says in verse 2, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, when you try to start studying this passage and really working through it, um, I mean, there's many different things. It, it's, you could almost put it in a, in a category of, of apocalyptic literature, like Revelation or parts of Daniel, because some of the references that he makes really are um, apocalyptic. Augustine the great church father, who after wrestling with this passage, he gave us this great wisdom. I frankly confess that the meaning of this completely escapes me. <laughs> so it has definitely challenged some of the, of the best theologians um, for hundreds, thousands of years. But if we want to um, understand eschatology, the end times, this really is a key passage. One theologian said, uh, in fact, 2 Thessalonians 2 is the passage 
that forced me to rethink my position on the end times and ultimately change my view. So it, it's very important if we want to understand some of the things at the end of time. Paul has three goals in chapter 2. All right, he has three goals. The first is instruction. So he's going to give them information. He's going to instruct them. The second is he's given warning. He wants them to guard against things. And then the third, which might catch you by surprise a little bit, is he actually wants to comfort them. All three of those things we will see in chapter 2. First, let's talk about some uh, definitions here, because we're going to talk about uh, and, and kind of camp for a little bit on verse 3, where he's talking about, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, I know some versions have uh, falling away. I think that's New King James and King James. Um, I actually like what the NASB says. It says apostasy. Okay, but any of those work, the rebellion, the apostasy. But notice one thing here first. Notice that it is the rebellion or the apostasy. So it's not just some general falling away. Um, he, he has in mind a specific falling away. It is the great falling away. Um, it's actually, this word is not used too many times in the scriptures. In fact, it's only used one other time in Acts 21 where it's talking about um, the charges being laid to Paul, that he's basically forsaking Moses and the commandments that Moses gave, basically falling away from that, um, rebelling from it. So the idea of apostasy, really it's just the Greek word, um, apostasia. So we really just take that Greek word and we transliterate that into English. Apostasia, apostasy. You can kind of hear it when, when I say it. Um, it's the same in Latin as well. And here's what it means. It's a departure in the sphere of religion or politics. A departure in the sphere of religion and politics. All the times that it's used in the Greek Old Testament and, and the one time it's used with um, Acts 21 in the New Testament has to do with the religious aspect of it. Okay, so a falling away from, uh, from religion. Now, when we talk about apostasy, we get a noun, um, apostasy, but we also get uh, a similar word, apostate. What's an apostate? Well, it's someone who has falsely professed to know God and in time has fallen away. So they've professed to know God, but at some point they deny Christ. They deny God. That's an apostate. That's kind of the short, short definition. Um, so what is this rebellion or apostasy? Because Paul is telling us something, that there's going to be this falling away in the last days. Matthew, which we'll probably look at uh, Matthew 24, so let's just turn there and, and maybe just keep your finger in Matthew 24 as well, because um, we're going to reference Matthew 24 a few times here. And, and Jesus talk, starts this, this section in verse 1. He says, uh, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. 
But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will, be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so that's like the, the header, basically, for the passage. They're asking him a question. Jesus is going to give a discourse, a teaching, on the coming of his coming and the end of the age. So he, he goes on, and some of this mirrors very closely what Second Thessalonians says. Makes sense, but you'll, you'll hear it and you'll see it. He says, verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Okay, so that's... that's the, the same thing that, that Paul is referencing, this falling away. Many will fall away, verse 10, and betray one another and hate one another. Now he goes on, we'll, we'll reference it again. Fall away from what? Fall away from what? Like following Christ, right? Fall away from, from the church, fall away from the faith. Two things happen that Jesus says there, as part of the falling away, people will betray one another. And people will hate one another. This is in the context of the covenant community, which is really sad. The pastoral letters have a, a similar pair of predictions that may, in part, um, had reference to the immediate future, but also the language that Paul uses in First and Second Timothy he uses apocalyptic language, and I want you to turn there as well so you can see it for yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So again, he's referencing this falling away. Second Timothy says something a little bit shorter, but more of a warning for us. Second Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And then he goes on to give us a short definition of that. So who's going to fall away? Uh, people have given different options. Um, really, only one of them makes sense. Some people have said it's the world in general that falls away. Doesn't really make sense. Um, the Jews as a nation, I really can't see that there. Or the church. Um, when we talk about apostasy, to fall away from religion or religious beliefs, specifically here, faith in Christ, then that's going to apply to people who are in the church. It's the visible church, right? I mean, we've talked about the visible church versus the invisible church. The visible church is all the people that call themselves believers, gathering in a building, right? 
it's possible, I pray often for every person in here in this room that's a member or that I know, um, even if you're not, that, that you would be strengthened in the faith, that you'd walk with the Lord, that you truly are saved. Pray that for uh, my family as well. But it's possible there could be people here who don't know Jesus, right? But they're part of the visible church. And those are the ones that will, that will fall away. At least some of them will fall away. They will deny the faith. They will do as, as Jesus talked about. They will betray one another. They will hate one another. Think for a moment of the history of Israel's falling away. What was one of the signs that they had fallen away? Like they, they started turning to different gods. They started worshiping different idols. But ultimately, when you boil it down, they weren't obeying God's commandments. And even when some of them were going through the motions, like the prophets call them out, and are like, oh, you're just, you're just kind of going through the motions. Your heart's really not in it. So even in the Old Testament, because sometimes, friends, we get the mistaken idea that like the Old Testament was all about law, the New Testament was all about grace. Now, God's always been concerned about the heart. Always concerned about the heart. You know, he even says, you know, a man sees the external, God sees the heart. So God's been concerned about the heart. The prophets at times call the people out. I mean, you're just going through the motions and you're just going through the routine. Your heart's not in it. So God is concerned about the heart. You think about Israel's falling away and God uses um, different nations to bring discipline against them. The Assyrians with the northern kingdom uh, the Babylonians with the southern kingdom, and at times uh, the Philistines invading as a sign of his discipline against them. But they would fall away, then what would happen? They'd come back as a nation, then they fall away, they come back, they fall away, they come back, right? Think about Elijah even. You know, Elijah's all bummed out after his showdown on, on Mount Carmel, but, but what does God say to him? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that is not kissed him. So God has a faithful remnant, and he always will. And even if people are falling away, God still has the true invisible church, which is his. Now think about it. Why do people fall away? I mean, in part deception, back in Second Thessalonians, look what he's warning them about. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. And it's similar to what Jesus said. Verse 4 of Matthew 24, see that no one leads you astray. Both of them begin their teaching with, hey, hear what I'm about to say and don't get tricked by anything else. Hear what I'm about to say and don't get tricked by anything else. So deception, why do people fall away? They're deceived. And, and we'll look at it a little bit later, but there's three different things that, that can end up deceiving people, all right? So they're deceived. But I want to say this as well. Why do people fall away? Because they love themselves more than God. They love themselves more than God. Look at Second Thessalonians. In verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception, there's that word again, right? Being deceived. So there's this deception. People are going to get caught up in that. People are going to get swayed by it. 
with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. But here's the thing, friends. Because they refused to love the truth. That, that's why they're going to get caught up in that deception. That's why they're going to get swept away. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Then it goes on. Therefore, okay, so they're refusing to love the truth and be saved. They're getting caught up in that. They're believing those false signs and wonders and powers. Therefore, verse 11, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So, I mean, he gives them over to their ways. Just Romans 1 in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So again, they're loving themselves more than God. Verse 12, they did not believe the truth. The truth was presented to them. They did not believe it. And then look at the very end. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. I mean, that's loving yourself, right? Hey, I I like doing this thing over here. You're choosing yourself over God. God says, don't do this thing. I'm going to do it. That's choosing yourself over God. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, the Thessalonians believed that believers would be alive and present when the day of the Lord occurred. How do we know this? Because they were concerned. They had missed it. So clearly they thought believers would be present for the day of the Lord. Paul didn't say, don't don't be worried because you won't be here. No, he said, you haven't missed it. And here are the signs that will precede it. Have you seen those signs? No. Okay, then he hasn't come. You haven't seen the signs. Guess what? I'm going to tell you what the signs are. Why? Because you're not going to be here, but at least you know about the signs? No, because you are going to be here, and I want you to know what those signs are so that you are prepared when he comes. So he's going to lay out two things for them. The first thing is going to be this rebellion, which we'll be here for. The second is the appearing of the man of lawlessness. Verse 3, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Where does that take us? It takes us to first outlining a few things that I want to make sure we are all clear on, and Paul wants to make sure we're clear on, from 1 Thessalonians 4, from 2 Thessalonians 2, from Acts chapter 1, Christ will return. Right? But here's the thing. Christ will return in the same way that he left. Where do we learn that from? Acts, right? Apparently we got to turn there. I wasn't planning on turning there. Acts, Acts chapter 1. So, this is Jesus. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. It says, verse 8, chapter 1, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, so how did he, how did he leave from them? I mean, he was physically present. He was literally there. He was addressing them, right? Then what does it say? He was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so Christ is going to return. He's going to return in the same way. 
Well, how is that? Well, it will be a literal return. It will be a physical return. It's not going to be some, you know, liberal churches, progressive churches, and you get to Easter every year. You, you push them on, like, what's the resurrection of Jesus? And they'll go into some spiritual trash. I mean, Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead is what they'll say. It was like this spiritual, you know, Christ is new in our hearts. I, I don't know how you get that from reading the Bible. Okay? You don't. Same thing with Jesus returning. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, <clears throat> they've messed up a lot of things. Um, so that it would be expected for them to mess this up too. But there was a pastor, 1800s, named Charles Russell. He taught that Christ would return invisibly in 1874. Invisibly, okay? Um, and make himself known to the world in 1914. Okay, well, you know, you, false teachers are, are great at one, like, setting dates, and then two, adjusting the date, right, once the date comes and, and they're wrong, and, and reinterpreting the information they originally given. So the next leader comes along and, and is like, well, um, he was kind of wrong in his calculations, and really in 1914 is when, when Christ came, came back, but, but it was invisible, and, and really there was this thing going on in heaven where the keys were being handed over and all that sort. I mean, they messed up the doctrine of, of the second coming, and they, they messed up the doctrine of, of the deity of Christ, but they messed this up. <clears throat> Friends, uh, hopefully some of this stuff is just plain and clear for you all to see. You're just reading it for yourself, and it's just like, oh, duh. But guess what? We need to make sure we do understand it we see it, and we believe it, because that's what it's written here. So it's going to be a return. Christ will return. He'll return in the same way he left. It will be a literal return. It will be a physical return. There will be signs that precede his return. Jesus laid out some of them. Paul's laying out two specific ones here before he gets into some more detail. And what we find out here is believers will be present for when Christ returns. We won't miss the event. Why is that important? Look back at Matthew 24. In verse 4, he says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Similar to what Paul's talking about with the, the false power signs and miracles being performed by Satan. Okay, Lead many astray if possible. Why is this last point important? Because believers aren't going to miss the event. It will be clear. Paul spells it out in detail in 1 Thessalonians 4. We won't miss it. We won't miss it. That's what he's trying to comfort them here in 2 Thessalonians. It's not going to be something that you end up missing by chance. What are the signs preceding this coming? Back in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says... Chapter 2, verse 3. For that day will not come unless. Unless. That, there's a big claim here. He's going to give us some key information. What is it? The rebellion comes first. So Christ isn't coming back until there's this rebellion. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What does that indicate? That Christians will indeed be present to see these two signs. And like I said before, notice it's the apostasy, not an apostasy. Many people will fall away from the faith. You know, unfortunately and sadly, you probably know people, friends of yours, maybe family members that have fallen away, okay? This is talking about the great falling away. 
the apostasy. Christians will see the apostasy occur in their midst at a level never seen before and never again. Christians will see the man of lawlessness and his great deception. Whatever your end time view is, it has to account for this. Christians will be here for these two events. But here's what I want to, I want to say. One, Paul's instructing them and giving them information. Two, he's warning them. We always have to be ready and willing to admit that we can be duped on something. Okay, If you're not willing to realize that and you're not willing to admit it, then maybe you've already been duped. Okay, So he's instructing, he's warning them, he's telling them to be on guard. And then here, guess what? He's actually comforting them. You're like, really? Well, yeah, if we keep reading, when you get to verse 12, it seems like the passage kind of wraps up this little section. Actually makes sense to include the next five verses, which we'll read starting in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, and then look what he says here, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I mean, comfort your hearts. Well, why? Because, like, they're kind of frazzled, right? They're shaken. But what's the comfort? Hey, because I'm, I'm explaining this to you. I'm warning you not to be deceived. I'm giving you the comfort that you haven't missed it by telling you what two of the preceding signs will be. That should comfort you, that you know that you're not going to miss it because you'll see those two signs occurring. Okay? So, chill out, Thessalonians. It's all right. So he gives them comfort. So back to the deception part, back to the warning, back to us being on guard. So who deceives us? Well, one, the world can deceive us. What's the world? I mean, it can be all sorts of different things. The world can include college teachers, right? The world can include employers. The world can include movies. So all sorts of things. There's false teaching everywhere. So the world can deceive us. The devil can deceive us, right? But guess what else can deceive us? We can deceive ourselves. Right? We can deceive ourselves. And if I asked you, who here thinks they're deceived? Well, no one would raise their hand because if you thought you were deceived, you'd stop being deceived. If you thought maybe you had, ah, oh, maybe I am, well, you'd look into it and figure it out if you were deceived. So, why the warning against deception? Why is he warning them against it? Because it was a very real possibility for them. And guess what? It's a very real possibility for us. 
how do we guard against it? I mean, we're given the answer we already looked at. It's loving the truth. Verse 10. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth. Friends, how much do you love the truth? How much do you love it? I'm not talking like mathematical truth. That's important. Scientific proof. That's important. Literature. That's important. But I'm really talking about biblical truth. Like what the Word of God says. How much do we love that truth? Because if we love it, and we're making that the thing that we're seeking out, the thing that we're putting foremost. And why do we love it and seek it out? Because we love God. So we, we, we're seeking after Him. And, and, and what does that even mean, to seek after God? Well, that means to seek out His truth. What does He say on certain things? And then we believe it. Why? Because He said it. God said it. That's good enough for us. So yeah, no one, no one thinks they're deceived. But then why do we get all these warnings in the scriptures about guarding against it? Because it is very possible for us for that to occur. And so we should pray regularly for the Lord to reveal to us areas that we might be deceived in. I don't want to be deceived. You want to be deceived? No. And what's the guard against that? The truth of the word of God. The truth that he has laid out very clear for us. That guards our hearts. Yet if we don't know it, if we're not studying it, if we're not living it, if we're not walking it out, we we just open up huge doors for us to be deceived. The cure for deception is loving the truth. There's all sorts of deception, friends, going on in the church at large. Recently, one denomination I uh, was updating their worship hymnals. And they added a new song to it. The title of which is The Climate is Changing. The Climate is Changing. And they proceed. Essentially, when you read it, I mean, it's about global warming, climate change. They're they're basically worshiping the earth. I mean, it's disgusting. Yet this was just recently added, and somewhere in some church today, they're singing that song. That's deception. Yet that church is filled with people that think it's okay to sing that song. That's deception. Think about this passage for a moment because we need to understand it in the proper context. This this passage is not written primarily to foretell the future. It does that. But it's primarily written, written to, to pastor the church. To minister to these 
Thessalonians. Paul isn't merely trying to satisfy their curiosity about end times matter, uh, end time matters, but he's providing them with much comfort to believers who were uncertain about where they stood in regards to Christ coming back and if they had missed out or not. They're frightened about end time events and unsure about their salvation. So, he's giving them comfort. And guess what? There's a time to comfort, and there's a time to warn, right? And he does a little bit of both here, and he does it really well. But don't mix up the two. Comfort when comfort is needed, and warning when warning is needed. Uh, One of my favorite verses, we used to sing about it in the youth group. It's Romans 16.20 says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Under your feet. Under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So, friends, we want to stay faithful. We want to run the race. And this is no time to slow down. This is no time to take breaks. This is no time to sit on the sidelines. Your Christian walk is more important now than it ever was before. And as Jesus continues to go on in Matthew 24, here's how he wraps up the first part of it by saying in Matthew 24, 13, The one who endures to the end will be what? Saved. We have to endure. We have to run the race. Guess who gets the prize? The one who finishes the race, right? So run the race well. Run the race fully. We want to finish the race. So take comfort that that God... Wherever you're at in your walk with him, if you're a believer, you can take comfort that God has all of this. End times, right now, whatever's going on in your life, he's got it. He's got it. Now, does that mean there's not going to be trials or tribulations or suffering? No. In fact, he talks about, look at, look at what it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you see that word suffer? Is it there in your version? Something similar at least. So it's been granted. God is granting to you what? To believe in him, but what also? To suffer. Part of being a believer is having suffering. That's not an opinion. That's a fact based on this and many other scriptures. Do you believe that? Yes. Okay. So, running the race, <clears throat> I mean, it's not some 100-meter yard dash. It's not some 5K. It's not some 10K. It's like a marathon, all right? So we have to run well. We have to pace ourselves. But we want to run well, and we want to see that finish line And we want to cross it. And some of us might cross it sooner than we think. 
Okay? That's taking the comfort from God that, that he has all things. Right? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, maybe you need to underline those two words, we know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Right? So it doesn't mean the, thing that, that the bad thing that happens is good. He's going to work it for good. Many bad things that we're going to experience. And they're bad. The scripture calls them bad. But here we're finding out that those who love God, that's the condition, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And here's the thing, though. You have to keep reading. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then it goes on, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. God sees it as completed. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. One word in the Greek, to die. It is finished. And he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished on the cross. He accomplished it. So, Paul can talk here in the past tense, calling us justified and calling us, in the past tense, glorified. Because to God, it is a done deal. If you're a believer, then all these things are true. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He's conforming you to the image of His Son. He's called you. He's justified you. He's glorified you. Again, take comfort that you have the God of the universe on your side. So, so I mean, who's going to win, y'all? Like, who's going to win? So, Zoroastrianism, if you don't know about that, it's like this cosmic fight against good and evil, and it's like, you know, the, the, the scales are constantly like 50-50, 51-49, some, you know, sometimes evil starts to win, sometimes good starts, it's almost like uh, uh, Star Wars a little bit, like, you know, the, the darkness, and then the good, and then the darkness, you know, there's never this, like, oh, ultimate power that can conquer everything. But in our universe, in the real universe, in the universe we live in, the only universe there is, we have God. And he is king supreme. He does as he pleases, and he has told us the truth about what we need to have life in him. He has conquered all so that we have the victory in Jesus. We take comfort in that. So we take the warnings and we make sure that we are grounded in the scriptures. We make sure that we are guarding our hearts. We make sure that we're doing what 2 Corinthians says and examining ourselves to do what? Make sure we're in the faith. Sobering verse. Some people don't like that verse. It's there. Make sure you're in the faith. Why? Because you might be deceived. That's the application. Okay. If, if, if Jesus wasn't concerned about it, if Paul wasn't concerned about it, guess what? The warnings really wouldn't be there. Oh, those believers, they'll never be duped. No. If we're honest, there's all areas in our lives where we've been, we've been duped before. Okay, so we're instructed, we're warned, it's hard to guard against things, and then he gives us this comfort. Look back at 2 Thessalonians as we close. 
verse 16, and this is a prayer again that he's praying. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us what kind of comfort? An eternal and everlasting and ever after comfort, right? That's what he gave us. Not just this little tiny cup of comfort. Oh, you drank it last week and you need... No. It's eternal. It's an eternal comfort. And some of us need that today. You need that comfort. Well, you have it. Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort in good hope through grace. And then here's the exhortation for us. To take all this from chapter 2 and let our hearts be comforted. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I, I do pray for anyone here who needs the comfort of Jesus today to receive it from him in its entirety. I pray, God, that anyone that might be deceived on any truth of yours that their eyes would be opened. If there's some area in their life that they're being deceived, enlighten their hearts. If there's anyone here who believes themselves to be saved and isn't God, please reveal that to them as an act of mercy. Show them where they stand with you so that they might truly believe and trust in you. And Lord, let us be people that love the truth. Let us be people that love the truth and that love you and that choose you over everything that the world has to offer. We choose you over anything that might come our way. Increase our love for you, Lord. Daily we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.